step one is made in air and imagination. And then step two is fierce protection of one's idea from dilution. This is Seven Stages, a podcast from The Stage sponsored by Audible. There are many strings to Ez Devlin's bow. She's a fated stage designer. Her designs include the Lehman Trilogy, the Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet, The Nether, Chimerica, Girls and Boys, plus many, many other plays and operas. But she's also one of the most in-demand designers for concerts and tours by the biggest artists in the world. I mean, the list of people whose world tours she's designed is just a list of the best and best-selling musicians you could possibly think of, like Beyonce, Adele, Kanye West, U2, Billie Eilish, The Weeknd, Dua Lipa, I mean, it's insane. Not to mention the fact that she designed Stormzy's 2018 Brit Awards performance and the London Olympics closing ceremony. Oh, and she also has a solo practice as an artist too and is one of few artists to have a Netflix documentary about her as part of the Abstract Art of Design series. Obviously, for someone whose life and work is so much about the visuals, there's only so far audio can take us. So have a look at her website for pictures of all her designs. They're incredible. I particularly love the Watch the Thrones tour for Jay-Z and Kanye West and this incredible like yellow LED walkway for the U2's Innocence and Experience tour. Bono, from U2, said this of Ez. She knows that artists are capable of spending a lot of time on cold concepts that have no relation to the heart. And Ez is always trying to put the blood back in. What was the first show you remember seeing? The Rye Pantomime. What was that like as an experience? Because Rye's tiny, isn't it? Basically, what I remember was recognising people playing the roles. So there were my parents' friends, the parents of my friends at school, some of the teachers, (laughs) some of the people who worked in the shop. So I guess my first encounter was with this phenomenon whereby there were people who I knew in one context who had a reality to me in their roles in my life and how they are related to my little, I was probably six years old, life. And overlaid onto this were their roles in the pantomime. It was Dick Whittington and his cat. It was a, a revelation to me that there could be these two layers, a kind of mirror world, the real world that I knew and this layering over of a fictional world. Uh, I know you played the violin at school. Would that ever have been like an option for you to go down that route? Do you know what? I, I really worked hard at my music. And for me, it was, it was almost a portal out of my little town. Because from the age of 11 to 14, every Saturday I'd get on our little train and I would go up to London, which was very exciting for an 11-year-old actually on my own. And I would get on the tube from Charing Cross over to Baker Street and go and have a clarinet and a piano lesson with a whole load of incredibly gifted young musicians. It was my portal into the city. I learned the tube map when I was 11 and 12. Time out used to have a list of jumble sales. And we, 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 we were country kids. We loved jumble sales. So there was a jumble sale on in Neasden. And I didn't know anything about London. So I just saw Neasden is on the grey line. Off I went with my A to Z, obviously no global positioning systems. Uh, and there I was with, uh, I was probably the only person who looked like me there, but I was elbows out. What were you buying? What did you want to buy? Me and my sister, we slightly disdained things that you could buy in a shop. We liked things that, that had been made. We felt that they were more original and we loved pattern. We thought that plain colours were no good. <laughs> everything had to have a pattern on it. <laughs> so we would buy Paisley. Everything Paisley was good. 
So we would buy paisley scarves and floral patterns. And then we'd come home, we'd stitch them together into a big skirt. Wow. Um, so we were mainly buying stuff like that. Was there much theatre when you were growing up? Did you go to the theatre much? Do you know, we had godparents who lived in London and every year they would take us to the theatre. So we'd go once a year um, and it would be to an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. So we saw Cats and we saw Starlight Express and we saw Song and Dance. But no kind of inkling then that that was a world that you wanted to sort of enter into. No. Because you studied English at university actually first, didn't you? And then... then foundation at central st martin's that's right so at what point sort of throughout that journey did you start thinking that theater might be the world that you wanted to move into do you know what? i didn't really at school i was into art i was very diligent and hard working on my drawings but i didn't want to go to art school not least because at that time if you went to art school you didn't get to leave home you went to you know maidstone or canterbury and you would be going in from home and <laughs> I'd, I'd heard stories about people going to university and I wanted to go and start a new life. That was my ambition. Also, I wasn't ready to pronounce, you know, I, I, I saw when I visited the art schools when I was 18 that people were in, left sort of in a studio to, to make work. And I thought, God, I, I, I don't have anything to say yet. I'm still learning. I want to read. So I went and read for three years pretty much. I think really what I learned over those three years at at university was how to research, how to sort of doggedly follow a thread um, and how to look through all of the reading with a sort of pair of glasses on that would help me find the thing I was looking for in the reading. And at the end of that, I was none the wiser and people were beginning to ask, would I ever get a job? Um, Particularly my boyfriend's dad, uh, (laughs) who, who, who thought it was a bit much that I was still not paying any rent. So I then went to art school and did the foundation course at St. Martin's, which was an exceptional diagnostic year where you just try a bit of each medium to see where you might feel at home. And I did do the theatre module actually with a wonderful teacher, Michael Vale, who's still my dear friend. And we, uh, I teach a little bit at, at Wimbledon where he teaches, but it didn't make me want to do theatre design, that module. Uh, so it didn't diagnose me, I'm afraid. Um, but but Michael did mention Motley and he said, look, the Motley Theatre Design course, you should go and check it out. And I sort of didn't take it in. And then a few other people said to me, you really should check out this course. So I thought, OK, well, everyone's telling me to have a look. So I went and had a look at the course and I just felt at home. I walked into the room. It wasn't that I said, I want to do theatre. It was that I smelt an atmosphere of people like me who were reading and were engaged with text and were engaged with image and were engaged with sculpture and were engaged with scale and were eating pot noodles and there was a mouse. And I was like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) Yeah, that was it. These are my tribe. (laughs) And that was, so that was that one out the back of Drury Lane. That's right. That's right. What was the show in there at the time? It was Miss Saigon. And so every night, we knew we were still staying too late because we would hear the helicopter go off. <laughs> and we knew right, it was like, all right, last tube's going home soon. The helicopter's just gone. <laughs> Did you ever see it? I never saw that show, actually. No, I never actually saw it. What was the first theatre show that you worked on then? I don't know whether that would be sort of professionally or at university or something like that. Well, if we're going to be specific, it was Jesus Christ Superstar at Bristol University. And I was a leper 
and I was part of Mob 7. Wow, that's quite uh quite a role (laughs) (laughs) i know i went for the audition i was really because because we loved we never saw jesus christ superstar it had sort of been and gone in the 70s when we were growing up but we had the we only had four records we had abba arrival the beatles red album classics with a beat and jesus christ superstar i knew the whole of mary's role so i went into that audition i thought right this is you know this is it and of course i got cast as a leper and part of mob seven (laughs) After Motley, or coming out of Motley, you won the Limbury Prize. Was that your first professional commission, what you won from Limbury? That was. And what was that show? That was Edward II, which was at the Octagon Theatre in Bolton, directed by Lawrence Till. Do you remember the design? What was your kind of vision for it? Yeah, I mean, it was an empty swimming pool. What Lawrence wanted was an environment in which he could find things. You know, he wanted an environment, almost like a film environment, almost like going on location. So I went round and I found some disused swimming pools in London. I forget where now, but I went and I took a whole bunch of pictures in these extraordinary disused swimming pool places. They still had like the stains of where the water had just drained away. And so it was a, it was a very different way to how I'd been trained really at Motley, which was very much more conceptual, more to think of the sort of mechanics of the piece and the mechanics of an environment for delivering the piece. And this was sort of a little bit of a shock to me because actually I do remember there was one occasion where Lawrence said to his assistant just before I came in for the meeting, I found out later, he said, oh, I I do hope Ez doesn't want to talk about the play again. He really was pretty fed up of me talking about the play and what he wanted was a you know really beautifully uh, executed environment for him to find the play in. And it had, from what I've read, showers that ran with blood as well. Which it did. Very, it did very have cool. that, yes. What were the kind of steps after that? Well, I was a rabid letter writer. <laughs> I was a very privileged person in that I genuinely did not pay rent. I had a boyfriend who was eight years older than me and who was working. He was just at a different stage of his life. And this is a very important point because this is a very unusual situation. And I'm constantly pointing it up because my story is not the same as many people's stories. But I was in that privileged position and I was able to pay for prints of the work that I'd done at college and the work that I had done on this initial first project. And I was able to send pictures of that with a very enthusiastic letter to those people I admired. And I wrote them letters saying, I admire your work and I'd really like to join in something. Um, And I sent thousands of them. And I sent one to Trevor Nunn. He wrote back and said, oh, would you like to do something? I mean, it didn't come straight like that. It was more, I think what actually happened next was I went to meet Mike Bradwell and go and see some of the work. I was living near the Bush Theatre. And I started going to the bush regularly and seeing that work and meeting Mike. And he really took me uh, on board as a sort of associate artist. And I did sort of five productions in a row there. Um, And it was one of those that I invited Trevor Nunn to. And he came to see it. It was a Joe Penhall play. I mean, in fairness to Trevor, I think he came because he wanted to see Joe Penhall's writing. But anyway, that led to me doing my first show at the National Betrayal in 1998. And it sounds like that was quite a production as well. The the pictures from that are extraordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, it was entirely over the top. Um, <laughs> poor Harold Pinter, I mean, the last thing he needed was me doing my first show at the National on him. <laughs> I was bringing yeah, but... out, you know, the video projection, the travelators. It was like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but he's this, he sounds like he was the sort of person that would have told you if that had been a problem. 
listen, I think he was intrigued. He had he had done betrayal in the in the way that betrayal probably needs to be done many times. So I think he was quite intrigued with this way of looking at it. Yeah, so that was 1998 and so much this work since then. I mean, recently, I guess that was, you know, the Hamlet and the Nether at the Royal Court and recently the Hunt at the Almeida and all these shows. If you had to pick a favourite, what would it be? Bregenz, the Carmen on the lake. Bregenz was something that we looked to when we were studying. There weren't many books about stage design, but such as there were, there was always a picture of the Balloway Mascara, the extraordinary Richard Jones production of the masked ball on the lake in Bregenz with the giant skeleton turning a book. And I had the number of pop stars who would send me that picture once the internet discovered it and once it got onto Tumblr and Pinterest. So this was always an aspiration and there had never been a female designer on the lake. I like working with the elements. Um, the biggest thing that happens at any production on the lake at Bregenz is the sun setting. And it does not matter what Berlioz is doing or Bizet or me or the director or any of us or any of the singers, the big event is the sun going down. And that's also true of my practice in the big stadium works that I make with musicians. I like people being outside, gathered together outside. So tell me about that design. What did it look like? So the design is a giant pair of hands, uh, 25 meters high, emerging out of Lake Constance. Between the hands are suspended, apparently in midair, a deck of cards thrown every which way and falling into the water. Projection mapping was used on the cards to give them the appearance of changing suit, flicking, dancing in midair. Luke Halls and his team provide an extraordinary uh, layer of projection mapping, very beautifully realised. It was a feat, an engineering feat, and the um, engineering team at Bregenz are exceptional. They don't really work with theatre builders, uh, they work with engineers and shipbuilders and people from local industries um, because they, they make a, a quite small budget go very far and they found that's the most efficient way. But they're dealing, you're dealing with tidal necessities. The water differential between low and high tide is 1.8 metres. Oh, wow. So if you want your performers to interact with the water, you've got to deal with that. Because it's a piece of public sculpture. I mean, people come and visit it. There's a whole sort of economy of a town is based on whether they get a good sculpture or a shitty sculpture that year, you know. So, so you, you know, it needs to operate as a sculpture and as an environment for performance. And people will take both tours round the back of it. So uh, that's interesting that, gosh, the economy of a town sort of rides on that. But I guess that that's a sort of pressure that's present in a lot of the work you do, you know, it must be true of the big stadium tours as well, where if you've got eighty to 100,000 people a night seeing these, the most famous musicians in the world, and the first thing they see when they go into that stadium is your design, I guess there's a lot of pressure there as well. Like, do you feel that pressure? Yeah, I mean, I liken that work, the big stadium and arena concert tour work, to portraiture. When you start yeah. with a primary text of a drama... That's one uh, mode of engagement. When you start with the primary text of a human being, right? Yeah. It's not just their lyrics and their music. It is them. Yeah. Right? yeah. So you are creating a, a digital and physical portrait. So you have the responsibility to the work, to make the work as good as you can make it. But you also have a responsibility to the subject 
of the portrait, which is the artist. They will be bringing that portrait to life each night. So you're also sort of making a garment for them in a way, this whole, however huge it is, this whole kind of edifice and congregation of pixels and truss and, you know, the materials that touring rock and roll is made of, which are quite limited materials to a degree. They have to be modular. They have to get in trucks. They have to be waterproof and windproof. They are in a way a big garment. I love some of the ways that you've interacted with that idea of fame and, and and status in the work that you've done with Beyonce and the Thrones tour for Jay-Z and Kanye West with this like you take the idea of a throne what was the sort of concept behind that that tour? Well that began you know I hadn't heard the music here's the thing often when you're working with a musician you haven't heard the music you're having conversations about ideas and themes and you're finding the aesthetic and you're finding the visual vocabulary but the music's either not written or so, so secret that it can't be shared. It really was a case of, we did a lot of work on Watch the Throne through sort of interpreting the themes of it. And it wasn't until one night in August, 2011, and it was the night, I remember it very clearly, it was the night of the Brixton riots in London, very, very hot night. And Kanye was with Virgil in London and they'd just come from Milan and they were you know, beginning the some of their fashion projects. They had a studio in, in the East End of London and they were busy working on, on many things. And they couldn't get over to Peckham because of the, the riots. Finally, they made it over and they brought us, we had not heard the music and they played us No Church in the Wild. It was the first time I'd heard Frank Ocean's voice. Literally, <laughs> they, they played us that album all night long. So it was a hot August night and we just listened to the whole of Watch the Throne I think they played it probably 12 times. And I think the, peop the people outside the studio in Peckham had no idea what it was that was beaming out the window. We had been through many, many ideas, but it was actually, uh, I had been working on a tour with a band called Muse and we had made a sort of a, a new technique really where we were able to take quite a standard rock and roll lift, you know, just a kind of scissor lift. And I was saying, well, it looks ugly underneath. How can we lift it and just extrude a box of LED? Um, and we worked with a company called Brilliant Stages, um, Tony Bowen's company, who came up with a, a really smart idea of using a product which um, concertinaed. So they and their brilliant engineers devised a technique of unfolding concertina-like LED as you extruded the lift. So you could sort of, with this Muse show, we could kind of make extruding boxes of LED. They're very, very commonplace now, but, but this was the first time it had been done. And Jay-Z had his own designer called Bruce Rogers from a company called Tribe Design. And Bruce said to me on the phone, uh, he said, look, why don't you just, you know, repurpose that idea? It's a no-brainer. You should really just use that. And, um, you know, those can be your thrones. And it was, it was a really brilliant steer. Kanye West seems to have been like the first big superstar music artist that, that you worked with. How did that relationship start? Well, actually, it happened in a number of ways at once. There was a festival at the Barbican called Only Connect. And it was run by Alex Poots, who's now the director of The Shed in New York. And he has always had a fixation and a fascination with putting practitioners together who might not normally meet. So he invited me to collaborate with a punk band called Wire in 2003. So that was the first concert I did. And then 
quite soon after that, Kanye saw pictures of that and invited me in 2004 to work on the Touch the Sky tour that opened in, in the end of 2004, beginning of 2005. But quite soon after that was a collaboration that had begun in 2000 with the Pet Shop Boys on their musical, which then led to collaborating with them on their tour in 2006. After that was um, weirdly a South Bank show about Salome, uh, which I had worked on with David McVicker at the Royal Opera House and uh, an artist, a wonderful singer called Mika, saw this South Bank show and he observed David McVicker tearing apart one of my model boxes and I think I was very pregnant at the time and by all accounts I flinched and Mika was very impressed with the way I just flinched and carried on <laughs> so he asked me to do his tour as well so during a period sort of between 2004 and 2008 uh, three different branches of the world of music kind of opened up by three different paths really and since then, you can add Beyonce and Adele and Lady Gaga and, and all these incredible artists to that. I, I guess at that time, were you conscious that that felt like moving in a different direction and potentially moving away from stage? And how did you feel about that? Well, I'll be honest with you that the world of theatre, of all the worlds I frequent, it's probably one of the ones that I have felt most an outsider in. Although, you know, I have been massively privileged and my work has been extraordinarily recognised there are some parts of theatre where I, I guess I felt I wasn't that welcome. And so the sort of coincidental invitation to make work where I could really be myself and not feel that I was too much, I guess there were some areas of theatre where I felt, you know, what I was doing was just too much and just a little bit uh, unwanted. There was a sort of strain of British theatre that sort of wanted designers to kind of know their place a bit. Um, and I definitely didn't really, I guess, fit too comfortably into that. I was probably a bit outspoken. Question four, then, is what are you working on at the moment? Which I guess, you know, might be quite a, a vexed question at the moment. But have you still got projects that are, are happening and, and scheduled and, and you, that you're working on? Yeah, what's been really interesting is that musicians that we work with have had some time to reflect during this period, which is something they're normally entirely poor in. They're normally rushing around on a, on a cycle of writing albums and then touring. So a lot of them have been in touch because they, they want to really plan out their next steps in terms of how will they translate their music into a visual vocabulary that might bridge the digital and the physical. That's really interesting. So actually there, there's a sense of using the time to take stock and sort of strategize, I guess, in a way then. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a wonderful group of set designers called Scene Change. They're not just set designers. There's a whole load of practitioners in theatre. And I've been really impressed by um, the way that that group is taking shape. And similar groups have formed in all the areas in which I practice. So there's a group of production managers in rock and roll who have been Zooming every Thursday We've been talking a lot with the institutional leaders of art galleries and cultural leaders with the World Economic Forum. There have been a whole load of examples of institutions becoming far more porous to one another and practitioners, individual practitioners, becoming far more porous to one another just because we have the time. And a lot of you know really important conversations about anti-fragility and how do we emerge from this with a theatre as well as other areas that is less fragile. I mean, I've had some excellent conversations with the theatre architect 
Steve Tompkins from Howard Tompkins and Paul Handley from the National Theatre, as well as Sonia Friedman, figuring out, you know, what was crap about theatre? <laughs> you know, what wasn't working? In what way was it insufficiently inclusive socially? And in what way was it, you know, inefficient? In, in what ways could it be better? Are there any specific projects that you're working on at the moment? There are. I'm trying to think which ones we're allowed to talk about. I can talk about the exhibition at the Met Museum. It was obviously meant to open on the first Monday in May as part of the Met Gala. And it's a piece all about time. It's called About Time. Uh, that's now scheduled to open 26th of October. And then we have the Dua Lipa tour, which again was supposed to be April, which is now January. And the weekend tour, which was supposed to be June this year, which will be June next year. And everything else... I can't talk about yet. So question five then is what was the one show that got away? So either as a designer, you know, you missed a phone call and you didn't get a, a gig or something, or just as an audience member, there was a show you really, really wanted to see and just didn't didn't get to for some reason. I wish that I had seen the Ariana Manushkin Theatre of the Sun piece. Now, this was in 2000. And I had some friends who told me about Ariana Manushkin and sometimes it's the shows that you don't see that construct themselves in your mind and have an extraordinarily wide-reaching impact on your practice, although they are purely your own construct. So in my mind, this Ariana Manushkin show, I see it in my mind as if I'd been there. You walk along this kind of gangway, this kind of planking. In my mind, it's wooden planking. And you look down from this walkway on either side and there are rooms in which the performers are getting ready. They're putting their makeup on and you're among them. And you sit with them while they eat their dinner. And then all of the utensils become the props in the show. So as an audience member, you are participant, you break bread with them. And the audience and the performer share this space before the terms of engagement are redefined and one is defined as audience and the other as spectator. So that's a show that I didn't go to. I was in the middle of going from one relationship in my life to another, and the adventure to Paris to see the work couldn't happen because of the complexities of being with the wrong person on the wrong day. I regret that I didn't go, but also I am very influenced by the version of it that I constructed in my head. Yeah, it's a strange thing about theatre, isn't it, that it exists and then it doesn't exist. And I guess that's true of, of your designs as well, which is that once they're, they're gone, they're gone and we've got the pictures and we've got the memories, but the physical evidence sort of disappears. I mean, how do you sort of feel about that aspect of, of design? Well, again, I've, I've oscillated throughout the past 25 years, quarter century that I've been practicing on this. My current position is I'm beginning to be very aware of the carbon footprint of even the pixels, right? Just the generation of the pixels. Because so much of my practice now in the studio, we're not so much cutting up bits of cardboard, but we are sculpting in pixels, making three-dimensional renditions of things that then get translated into physical material. And we've chastised ourselves about the, the wastage uh, and the carbon footprint of the physical material. But now I'm beginning to be more enlightened as to the actual carbon footprint just of those servers and computers rendering and chuntering away. And I've been very inspired by some of the work in fashion, particularly Duran Lantic, who is making work which repurposes dead stock. 
So that's taking archival pieces, which didn't get sold from the major fashion brands and taking a Prada, taking a Gucci that is going to be shredded because it can't be sold cheap because that would devalue the brand. So taking those clothes and stitching them together, and he does this beautiful thing of stitching half a Prada label together with half a Gucci label and repurposing the dead stock. And I'm very interested in repurposing the dead stock of our pixels. So we have vaults, we have a 25 year vault of every piece of material that, we, that we've made and, and, and much of it is digital. And I'm very interested in, in drawing out those digital models that actually never got translated into physical atoms. You know, they were too expensive or the idea changed. And my team have spent, you know, hours on them and they've, they've left a carbon footprint. So this is the exploration now. So I guess having originally sort of talked about the ephemerality of theater and it only existing in people's minds after the event, I then sort of started to explore the carbon footprint of the theater materials. And now I'm interested in the, the digital presence that actually doesn't expire and hangs around and the carbon footprint of that and how we can therefore repurpose it and re-explore it in a digital parallel space. So do you think that kind of awareness of the carbon footprint, that's going to change your practice, change the way that you work? Oh, it has to. I mean, you know, the pandemic is a portal, as Aaron Datty Roy said, and, you know, it's accelerated and shoved in our face so many of our practices and, and we've had to change and explore how we might change radically in the face of the pandemic. But the climate crisis is obviously <laughs> deeply at work already. I guess with all that in mind, then, question six follows on quite naturally, which is that if you had an empty space and an unlimited budget, what would you stage now? I'm very interested in the mirror world, this one-to-one -one map of everything in the physical world. I feel that we are not quite committing either way. So often during times of the day, I find personally I'm neither here nor there. I'm not really engaged uh, with the physical world, world around me. And my range of engagement with the digital world is sometimes quite impoverished by this slight sort of guilt about you know being distracted and being in my phone. So if I had an empty space and could stage anything, I would like to make work in a collaborative spirit with many, many others that addresses this and starts to in the way that my son spends hours in Fortnite, starts to develop that island and starts to imagine what other parts of that island are undiscovered. What else could be created if we applied our imaginations, if so many of us who are not used to working in that space turn to it just during this time while we can't work in our normal spaces, what influence might that have on what gets made there? The work that you do is so rooted in in very careful thought about why the work exists in the way it does. But how much of your time do you have to spend on pure like practicality? I mean, the example that I was reading about is this colossal statue for Take That's Tour. And then at some point you can't get over the fact that the size of the head has to be the size of the smallest bridge in Germany because the, the flatbed lorry has to go through it. So how much of your time is spent dealing with those kind of practicalities and obstacles? Step one is you know, made in air and imagination. And then step two is fierce armor on. And this is true of all set designers <laughs> and, and artists uh, who, who work in the physical world, fierce protection of one's idea from dilution and encouragement of one's idea to evolve through those conversations. So, you know, actually the conversation with the person who 
knew the height of all the bridges that this thing was going to have to drive under was a very, very fascinating conversation. And again, we talked a bit, a bit earlier about placeness. It roots it in place because when you're dealing with imagination, you're always looking for physical parameters to stabilize your imagination. The suspension of disbelief uh, requires this grit of reality and of placeness and, you know, anecdotal local detail. So, so it gives it more form. But in terms of how does one divide the day, yeah, it's a constant, again, oscillation between the immaterial and the brutal concrete, you know, the brute physicality of stuff. So question seven, final question. What's the one show that you've seen that you'd happily watch on a loop forever? For so many reasons. I'm going to go for Pina Bausch, Mazurka Fugo. Of the Pinas, it's probably not, you know, one of the real kind of Nelkin or Palermo Palermo. It's worked towards the end of her life when she traveled in South America. And it was immensely joyful work, you know, shockingly joyful to real Pina followers, I think. And I think some of them somewhat disapproved of how joyful it was. But again, uh, it was at the period of the show I didn't see. This was the next opportunity to go as part of this new adventure with a new relationship after ending a very long previous relationship. And this one, having not gone to see the Aaron Manushkin, we said, well, we're, we're going to see the Pina Bausch. We had to, you know, phone every day to get the ticket. It was at the Chatelet Theatre in Paris. And I was so excited about it all that when we turned up, we'd actually got the day wrong. So we'd arranged all this sort of, you know, machinations to get ourselves there. And then I ended up having to sort of bribe a student in the queue, give her 50 quid and say, please, will you come back tomorrow night and let us go tonight? Because we booked the hotel and everything. Anyway, so after all that, uh, you know, nearly not going again. And there's something symbolic going on here about changing the relationship and everything. But once, once we were through the door and settled, we were in. What I remember about it, it was joyous, um, water skidding down. There was a huge rock in the corner of a big white box. Hilariously funny. It was my first Pina Bausch and I had expected it somehow to be very, you know, profound and earnest, but it was ridiculously funny. Lots of little comedy cameos, but profoundly moving. These huge projections of time-lapse flowers opening on the wall. Utter, utter joy. I could sit and have that on a loop. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. I just wanted to ask one final thing, which is very kind of a bit a bit silly, but I'm genuinely curious. Do you ever get to a point where you do something literally just because it looks really cool? Oh, yeah. <laughs> definitely. <I'm good. laughs> yeah. I mean, one can work in so many different registers. And because I'm collaborating with primary source material a lot of the time, which is operating at so many different registers, and that's the joy of it for me. I'm so fiercely believing in breaking down the barriers between what is considered highbrow and lowbrow. I do think some of the problems we have in our country that led to the Brexit vote, I must say, may have been certainly propelled a little bit by what's endemic in our culture which is a separation and a sense that, well, you're either someone who listens to Radio 4 or you're someone who listens to Radio 1. You're either someone who, who works with Miley Cyrus or you're someone who works on Harold Pinter. And I just think life is so much richer <laughs> when, when you move on from that and so much healthier. That was Ez Devlin. 
Seven Stages is sponsored by Audible, who have a huge library of audio plays alongside their audiobooks, including the absolutely searing Iphigenia and Splot, written by Gary Owen, performed by Sophie Melville, directed by Richard O'Riordan, which is quite a team. I remember so vividly watching this, I think it was in Pleasant's Dome on my last day in Edinburgh in 2017, about an hour before I had to get the train back to London, and I didn't stop thinking about it all the way home. It's an incredible piece of writing about a girl called Effie, and the judgments we tend to make about people, and the NHS, and austerity, and deprivation, and just loads of other things, and it's, yeah, just such an incredible performance too. You can listen to it with a 30-day trial at audible.co.uk forward slash theatre, and prices start at 7 99 a month after 30 days, and it renews automatically. Remember, the stage.co.uk can keep you up to date with the latest coronavirus news, as well as interviews, features, reviews, and so much more. But that's all from me for now, and next episodes will be in a few weeks' time. Until then, thanks for listening.